Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to the second of our Secret Movie Club Summer 2023 podcast. So this is Secret Movie Club Summer 2023 podcast two, where we're going to do a bit of a hybrid, where we're going to talk about something new uh, briefly, like five or ten minutes. And today I wanted to talk about the this cultural juggernaut that we're actually living through this summer of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, but also uh, the underperformance of Mission Impossible uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1. And I wanted to talk about the interesting nexus of box office success, great critical reviews, uh, and and movies that endure over time. And it's interesting to think about this because, of course, all of us as filmmakers would love uh, if our movies were commercial hits, critical successes and then only gain in artistic integrity over time. That would be the dream. Uh, you could keep making movies and everybody would come out well and you'd feel great about it. But it's really interesting. But we can't do that. We can't choose. How, you have no control over all the weird things in the universe that either come together uh, for something to be a pop culture moment or not. So talk briefly about that. And then we're going to repost a Secret Movie Club podcast 15, which was about uh, Spike Lee. She's got to have it to Five Bloods, Malcolm X. And uh, the current moment, we recorded that podcast in June of 2020 when there were just a whole bunch of horrible things happening in the country in terms of police brutality, George Floyd, and a lot of people becoming aware, shamefully, uh, not being aware before, of unequal treatment of African Americans in the United States versus white people when it came to the police. And something that I think black people in the United States have been trying to tell everybody for years and years and years, centuries and centuries and centuries. And weirdly, it's the the smartphone and people recording these moments of police brutality that finally people couldn't ignore it. They had to confront it. And it was a really interesting podcast. And now that we're a few years from that moment, I thought it might be interesting uh, to post it. We also had amazing special guests uh, on that podcast, as we needed to, uh, in case you didn't know. <laughs> Clearly, I'm white. Uh, and so we had uh, Asia Ray Coleman and Kevin Johnson uh, come on and talk about how they felt uh, as uh, African Americans in the United States, how they feel about Spike Lee and how they felt about everything that was going on. Uh, so uh, please take a listen to that. When you hear this... On Friday, August 4th, tonight, we are showing Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven, on 35mm. We got a 35mm print. And then we are doing a great underseen uh, heist movie from the 1970s, The Hot Rock, with uh, Robert Redford, George Siegel, a great 70s cast. And it, it's had a bit of a resurgence lately. Next week on Wednesday, August 9th, we're going to be doing our secret filmmaking workshop. You still have today to write us at community at secretmovieclub.com if you want to be a part of it. If you're an actor, uh, actors especially, I think we may be full up on writers. In fact, I'm positive, uh, who've submitted scenes. But once a month, we do a workshop where writers submit scenes and actors do the scenes and everybody gets to workshop. Uh, we are prepping our first secret series at Secret Movie Club. Uh, if you've followed our social media, you'll know why. If you you haven't, maybe look at our social media. We are going to do the first night of this secret series Saturday, August 12th. 
So uh, you, if you look at the social media, you'll figure out what it is. I've been wanting to do this for a long, long time. And uh, it is going to be everything from, uh, I believe, I, I may I may edit a little bit, but uh, it's going to be everything. It, it, this secret series involves TV, it involves a movie, it involves edited cutscenes, it involves a, a limited series that came out 25 years after the series itself. So I write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets at eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. And we hope to have the whole crew back uh, September 1st, and then we'll be regular podcasts for the rest of the year. Uh, but in August, you're going to get these hybrid podcasts while we're just working to prep everything. So there you go. Okay, moving on. As of this recording, August 2nd, uh, 2023, the Barbie Oppenheimer, uh, so basically Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer shot on IMAX 70 millimeter. Both opened the same weekend, and before it, something caught on with the pop culture of uh, talking about Barbieheimer. Uh, which one were you going to see first? Were you going to see both of them? And uh, but what has happened, uh, blessedly, is that both movies are huge successes. Uh, Barbie, more in terms of just pure box office, Barbie is probably going to go on to be the most successful movie of the year, along with Secret Mario Brothers, uh, or at least very high up there. Oppenheimer, though, which the budget for Oppenheimer, I believe, was significantly less than the budget for Barbie, uh, is doing uh, exceptionally well. And what uh, really is surprising everybody is that Nolan stuck to his guns, shot Oppenheimer in IMAX, 70 millimeter film. There are only 30 theaters in the world that can show it that way. And many of those theaters now are sold out uh, for the whole of the run. Uh, because people want that special experience. Uh, Barbie is blowing everybody's minds because uh, it stars Margot Robbie, uh, Ryan Gosling, Will Ferrell. Uh, but what's blowing everybody's minds is that it somehow managed to thread what seemed like an impossible needle. Uh, it is a movie that everyone is having a blast at. At the same time, it is very self-aware that Barbie needs to evolve into the 21st century. And there are issues and questions in the movie about patriarchy and uh, being a woman and being empowered and uh, sort of male-female dynamics and feminism. And uh, it sort of enraged a portion of the United States population who are against woke things or what have you. But uh, the Barbie's having the last laugh because it's making hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and it's only been out uh, for several weeks. And what I wanted to talk about briefly is I, I got to thinking, what is the correlation between box office success, critical reviews, being in the pop culture moment, and then uh, longevity as a movie that people remember? And I think that the short answer there is there's actually not a super solid correlation between any of those things. Some movies are huge box office successes and no one talks about them. There, there are movies from the 30s and 40s that just have not endured, but at, during their time, they were the biggest hits of the year. There are movies that get great critical reviews, and I was thinking specifically of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now, it's always weird to talk about this because Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is not—it didn't bomb— uh, it's made already, I think, $400 million. But the problem is that its price tag 
like the Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny price tag was $300 million. And I think that's before advertising and marketing. And so to become profitable, it has to make $800 million. And uh, I don't know the, the economics of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, but I, I think it's something similar. It has to make $600 million, $700 million to be profitable. And so uh, it is underperforming, especially because Tom Cruise's last movie, Top Gun 2 Maverick, made $1.5 billion uh, around the world. Uh, what's interesting to me is that Dead Reckoning got great reviews. Uh, and most people said, hey, it's uh, continuing the trend of this high-quality Mission Impossible. What an incredible series. The, and, and I'm a big Mission Impossible fan. The only one I'm not a huge fan of in the entire series is 2, although I learned that Mission Impossible 2 is actually the second highest grossing Mission Impossible behind Fallout. Uh, and it, it, it's not that Mission Impossible 2 directed by John Woo is bad. It's actually not bad. But in comparison with the rest of the series, it's more or less the good side of okay. All the other ones are good to great. Uh, which for a series that now has seven movies, that's pretty incredible. I mean, no one, very few series can boast that. Star Wars can't really boast that. Uh, James Bond can't really boast that. But the Mission Impossible series has been very consistent. But what's interesting is that I think maybe the Mission Impossible series was hampered a bit by trying to come out a week or two before Barbie and Oppenheimer. And then when Barbie and Oppenheimer came out, they just sucked the oxygen uh, sort of out of the theater. It's probably not the right way to say it, but then everybody was talking about uh, the. Everyone was talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer, and that also reminds me just how brutal the summer landscape is, and always has been. There are always ten or you know fifteen movies that are going to come out over the summer. Everybody will do their horse trading about which ones they think are going to be mega hits. And usually there's some people are right about it, but it's always interesting. Almost every summer there's a movie that everyone thought was going to be a hit that's a bomb. Then there's a movie that people did not expect to perform as well as it did. And so the what I wanted to say was that in the case of Barbie, uh, you have a box office success that's selling toys, uh, you know, Barbie dolls, just like the Lego movie. And like a lot of the movies that are coming out now, they're selling a product. And on one hand, th that's not great for cinema. Uh, I mean, you, you always have to go where the money is, and the money now is in products. And, and I get why those movies are being made. But you have to hand it to Greta Gerwig uh, and her team for taking, embracing that challenge, saying, okay, I'm going to make a Barbie movie. And figuring out how to make a movie that is simultaneously super entertaining, uh, super self-aware, super satirical, super funny, and actually addresses some of the most important points uh, of the moment. That's really the miracle of the film. And uh, I think that probably can't be celebrated enough. It's so hard to get meaning uh, into a movie and also, too, to, to have control of it. And it, Greta Gerwig and her team really have done it. And Mattel gave them the, the, you know, they gave Mattel, let them do it, which I think speaks to the intelligence of Mattel, too. Uh, now, Oppenheimer, what blows me away about that is this really is a throwback to the kinds of movies that you I want to believe uh, can be successful again. And Oppenheimer is proving it. I mean, who would have said? 
before Oppenheimer came out, that a biopic, a nonlinear Christopher Nolan biopic about the godfather of the atomic bomb, that that movie would be a juggernaut summer blockbuster hit. Uh, and what what makes me happy about that is it just shows you that if you have a super talented filmmaker who really knows the story that he or she wants to tell and really sticks to their guns and tells that story in a way that feels like a special experience at the theater, people are going to come. And probably, and I'm going to bring it home because I could go on for a half hour about this, but what I do love is that... Uh, Basically, I think we are starting to see the first glimmers of movies coming back and taking their place again in importance in pop culture. And I think Barbie and Oppenheimer are showing that. Uh, with Mission Impossible, I actually have a lot of love for the Mission Impossible series. So I hope with Mission Impossible uh, Dead Reckoning Part 2 that maybe whether it's scheduling or sequencing, that they they certainly can find a way to... And again, it, it, it's weird to say that a movie underperforms when it's going to make 400 or 500 million worldwide. That's also something that has to be looked at. Hopefully the COVID budgets... Now that COVID is in the rearview mirror, I know that added 25% to the budget, but it does seem untenable to have a thriving movie industry if you're, you're, the movies you're hanging uh, your hopes for the success of the studio on have to make $800 million. That, that seems untenable to me. And then you're, you're putting in $300, $400 million and then holding your breath. Uh, so, uh, and then the final thing I wanted to say is longevity. We're talking right now at this moment about Barbie, Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. It'll be very interesting to see in 10, 20, 30, 40 years which of those movies actually has longevity. And that's the bittersweet pain, I think, of being a movie maker is that sometimes you make a movie and it underperforms or nobody likes it at the time or it falls flat and you suffer. You don't get to make other movies and then 10, 20, 30 years uh, down the line, suddenly the culture catches up with the film, loves it, and it becomes really important. And yet you probably had to suffer for 10, 20, 30 years not getting work, not being able to make other movies. But then you ultimately get to see your movie uh, ascend and have longevity. And I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's really funny to think, you know, what do you prefer? Would you prefer to have a huge box office success that no one remembers? Would you prefer to have a movie that uh, is critically loved from the beginning? Or uh, would you, you know, would you take a movie where no one got it at the beginning and then over time, slowly, it uh, becomes huge, but you don't necessarily financially or professionally benefit from it? Uh, so those were just the thoughts I was thinking. And again, sometimes they they intersect and coalesce, and sometimes these things don't. But it is interesting to think about that in this moment. Okay, thank you guys. Uh, let's get on to the main event, Secret Movie Club Podcast, Episode 15 Repost, which is Spike Lee, She's Gotta Have It, The Five Bloods, Malcolm X, and The Current Moment. Enjoy.
And Edwin, just real quickly, just to blow up all our minds, how many movies have you seen during the COVID quarantine? Uh, about 200 and something. The last one I saw right now was a piece of shit called Three Ninjas. I regret Oh, I love Three Ninjas. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. I'm forgiving. It's a classic. You're too, you're too young for it. Edwin, you didn't grow up with it. I did grow up with it. I've seen those movies, and I bought it. No, I bought it a long time ago. I watched it for the very first time in a long time. God, they made me feel awful about myself. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to our podcast number 15. Today, we are going to be talking about Spike Lee and his movies, specifically She's Gotta Have It, The Five Bloods, which just came out, and Malcolm X, as well as Go Wherever the Conversation's going to lead us. Uh, we have two special guests today, and I'm very excited, and I want to thank you guys again uh, at the risk of being profuse. First, uh, let's go to Asia Ray. Asia Ray, would you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hi, my name is Asia Ray Coleman. I am an actress. I work mostly in commercials and television and streaming most recently. Um, and I'm also the founder of a, a company called Acting Resource Guru. We really give actors practical steps to get more auditions and stay in the know and really step into the role of leader so that they can play an active role in their own success in the industry. So I'm really, really happy to be here, Craig. Thank you for being here, Asia Ray. And Asia Ray and I have known each other for, I'm, I'm just going to like cover my mouth every time I say Asia and I, <laughs> Asia Ray and I have worked together. Asia Ray was in a play we did a while back. It's an honor to have you on the show. And we all have uh, our special guest, Kevin Johnson. Kevin, would you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Kevin Johnson. I'm a freelance writer and film reviewer, most recently from redcarpetreporttv.com. Uh, I uh, love movies uh, whenever I get the chance to watch them, especially now in the streaming age of COVID. But uh, they're also a great chance to uh, illuminate different things in society, furthering a human conversation. And that's what I really love about being here in Los Angeles and talking with other film lovers. And one day, uh, once we are able to recover from this madness, film goers. So it's not over yet. We're going to come back to life, come back to reality, to quote Soul to Soul. <laughs> totally. I want to thank uh, our producer and chief creative content officer, Connor, because it really was Connor who who started our thinking on this podcast. We've been talking the, for about a month, I believe, uh, ever since the George Floyd murder about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and where our country is at. And, you know, what we need to be doing, what everyone needs to be doing, there are these rare moments where you can feel there's a chance of a groundswell and a change. And then history is going to define you and your kids are going to look you in the eye 20, 30 years later and be like, what did you do? Where were you at in 2020? And Asia Ray and Kevin, because you have a first person perspective as black artists, as black people, and and just giving your your insights into what we're talking about today and what's happening in the moment. Connor was the one who, who said you know, I don't think this podcast on Spike Lee should be uh, white guys <laughs> <laughs> just talking about Spike Lee. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Connor, I think you're right. So uh, we're going to have a free flowing conversation today. And, and it's just an honor that you guys are here. So thank you. Thank you. And uh, now just our regular intro. Who from the Secret Movie Club team is with us? Hi, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me. And I have an impression. My, my voice hurts and I'm too damn tired. Everything hurts. OK, Edwin normally does an impression. When you say you're too damn tired, Edwin, does that mean you haven't slept? I went to bed at five. That's what I thought. OK, what what and what did you end your night watching Three Ninjas? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> 
So now I understand why he's in a bad move. Ed, Edwin did not like Three Ninjas, as he informed us before we started the show. Uh, you've got Edwin Gomez, and then I'm Craig. I'm the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. So here are announcements uh, for this week, uh, the week starting uh, June 22nd, 2020. First off, this Wednesday, although by the time everyone hears this podcast, it'll have been out for a few days. Wednesday, June 24th at 1 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, we are releasing our first Secret Movie Club radio hour called The Strange Round the World Flight of Doyle Fox. It'll be free. So if you're hearing this podcast and you want to hear and tell us if we did good, if we did bad, if we did somewhere in between, we have started a uh, anthology series inspired by the great radio anthologies of the 40s and 50s, Orson Welles, Mercury Theater. I love this sci-fi anthology called X Minus One, Twilight Zone a little later on on TV. You'll get to hear our first episode. It runs uh, about 50 minutes and we'd love to hear what you think. It's an action adventure with some supernatural elements that takes place in 1937. Then this week at the end of the week, uh, we are going to do another round of Netflix watch parties because we are still, as Kevin said, in the era of COVID and streaming. This week, we're doing a little mini fest on speculative sci-fi movies, recent ones. So on Friday at seven, we're going to do Alex Garland's Ex Machina at 920 that same day. So it's a double feature. If you want to join us, we're going to do Yorgos uh, Lanthimos's The Lobster, two very different approaches in a way to sci-fi. And then on Saturday, we're going big, big blockbuster 2010. We're going to take a look at Christopher Nolan's Inception and see how it holds up 10 years later. So if you'd like to join us for any or all of those, just go to any of our social media. Our best places are our Facebook page, Secret Movie Club 35MM. You can also go to our website, secretmovieclub.com, or just our Eventbrite where we sell tickets. This is all donation, just so you guys know. You could donate a buck, and then you get the code, and as long as you have Netflix, we all chat, we provide deep dish trivia, and we'd love to have you on. And then lastly, it does look like we may... <laughs> I sound like a lawyer when I say this. It does look like we may, but I cannot stress more that this is not smoke, that this is a little more fire than smoke this time, although that's probably a horrible metaphor to use as I intro this. We are probably going to be coming back to some kind of live screenings uh, in July. We don't know if that's going to be drive-ins, if it's going to be a combination of drive-ins and very, you know, capacity kept down, everything observed. Movie theaters, we're figuring it out. Our number one priority is that we're socially responsible and smart and walk a middle path. So it's not a pain in the ass to go see a movie. But at the same time, you can come in and be like, these people did it right. I feel comfortable here. So just take a look. We'll know more this week and we'll be making an announcement as long as everything works out. We'll be making an announcement next week about our programming and where we're showing and all that good stuff. And lastly, you can always write us at community at secretmovieclub.com and podcast at secretmovieclub.com. And as some Secret Movie Clubbers are already writing us, if you've got ideas or like, hey, do this, this is what would get me back to the theater, this is definitely what would make me not want to come, we want to hear it. topic today is Spike Lee and three of his movies, his uh, debut feature, She's Gotta Have It, his most recent feature, Defy Bloods, which just uh, premiered on Netflix uh, June 12th, and his movie Malcolm X with Denzel Washington, which really is a hinge movie if you've seen a lot of Spike Lee's. It's sort of the end of his first period. It's the last movie he shot with Ernest Dickerson. And uh, then from there, he moved into what would probably be called his middle period. I totally, if you guys have better, because I think the next movie was Clockers after Malcolm X. And that was a new DP and kind of a new style. Let's just dive right in, guys. We watched uh, She's Gotta Have It, which was made in 1986. It was his debut feature. He eventually made it for $175,000, but he only started with 20 grand. Spike Lee had won the Student Academy Award in 1982, and he realized he, 
no one was going to give him money to make his debut feature. In fact, I read this really interesting thing that he was trying to get a movie called The Messenger off the ground with Lawrence Fishburne. And they did that thing where it was like a lot of meetings and a lot of producers. All of us in the movie industry know that like that hell. And and Spike Lee eventually was just like, this is not going to happen. Like uh, three years of my life are gone and, and this they're never this isn't going to happen. So he took 20 grand and he just started the movie. And then as he went, he raised the movie and she's got to have it. It launched him. He eventually remade it as a Netflix series, one and two, just recently, where he tried to correct what he felt were some of the big mistakes he made as a young man and how he represented the material. It's basically about an a independent uh, woman who's an artist who lives in the Fort Greene district of Brooklyn. Her name's Nola Darling, and she has three boyfriends, and she gets sick of the fact that guys can have three girlfriends and brag about it, but a girl. A woman couldn't have three boyfriends, and so she just lives the, her life the way she wants to. And it's a comedy, but it also deals with uh, sort of it deals with a lot of themes that that are still relevant today. Well, it's funny because I thought I had seen this movie, and I realized that when I rewatched it this weekend, I had never seen the whole thing. I was way too young to watch this movie when it came out, and I don't think my family was cool with me watching it. So it, that is interesting in and of itself, you know, for the time, I feel like it was very, I mean, I don't want to say graphic, but it was, you know, um, in terms of the scenes that it showed and, and what I loved about it was I felt like the sex scenes, the intimacy was graphic, but so beautiful, like, so really a celebration of the black female form in a lot of ways. And, and she was irresistible. You know, I, I just love the idea that she was so irresistible to, men to women, (laughs) you know, she just had this quality about her that was celebrated. So there were a lot of things that were kind of iffy to me about the movie. Like I don't, I don't talk crap about other actors performances. (laughs) Like that's just not something that I do, but I, the style of the acting was different than what you would see in the five blood, you know, just like the, there was a less naturalistic feel to a lot of the acting (laughs) that montage where the guys are talking almost looks like really bad self tapes one after the (laughs) you know what I mean like but I I really enjoyed watching it it was really interesting to to see his very first film or his first feature you know I loved it I, I I had seen it a while ago and loved it. And then I saw it again and I was like, no, this still holds like, this is dynamite. He, the movie making is great. Like you said, I love movies that have sex, but I, I think it's very hard to do it organically with the story as cinema. And I actually, you know, there's that great scene where she and Greer sleep together and it's edited like the top shot. So, uh, you know, and the filmmaking was dynamic. My question to you though, Asia Ray, is that it was made by a guy and there are there are beats in it where as a guy, I was thinking, did you feel that Nola Darling could did you relate? Did you feel she was she she worked as a female character? What what do you think worked and didn't work? I did. It worked for me. I, I think the reason I might have been so forgiving about things that might have been offending or weird to me was that she was completely unapologetic for who she was. And I appreciated that because I think that a lot of men are that way and then that's okay for men but for women it tends not to be and I also liked at the end when she chose Jamie right I like that at the at the very culmination she realized I'm not a one-man woman like this is just me (laughs) you know it allowed her a journey where she reconsidered but then realized she was 
she was actually right about herself all along. So I feel like there was a certain power in that. Uh, I think a key scene is when she visits, when Nola Darling visits the um, the sex therapist, and she says, "No, she's a perfectly healthy woman." Love that. And 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 everything from that is Spike navigating the voice of the movie of like the world that's around Nola Darling and Nola's voice herself. So I grew up around this movie, but I hadn't seen it. I remember being a kid. My parents both encouraged me watching black cinema, everything from Robert Townsend's Hollywood Shuffle to uh, Brother from Another Planet with Joe Morton to even, God help me, Jumping Jack Flash with Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg and a very young Jonathan Price. And basically, I grew up um, as black cinema as the norm, and my, and my parents cultivated a space for that for me. So I knew about Do the Right Thing, uh, Malcolm X. I remember Malcolm X was the first movie my dad let me stay up late to watch when it was uh, finally released on home video. But I always would look through the videotape collection they had, and there was She's Gotta Have It. And for some reason, I knew, it was like, I know this is Spike Lee, and I know that this is his first movie, but for whatever reason, I never watched it. It's probably not a movie you want to watch with your mom and dad. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's like somehow, and they didn't need to tell me that, uh, let's not watch this right now. But it was like, yeah, I'll watch this when I'm, when I'm ready. So I'm very grateful to come onto the podcast today and talk about this. And I knew about the scene when Spike Lee first announced the Netflix series, right. saying that he wanted this to be a corrective of sorts about um, the rape scene, or as Nola would describe it, the near rape scene, but I wouldn't describe it that way. Um, society can be toxic, and it's important to have an honest dialogue with society through the lens and art of film. And the toxicities that society possesses will infiltrate its way into art. Same thing with Gone with the Wind on HBO Max. Same thing with Why Song of the South isn't on Disney+. Plus. So that scene was extremely hard to watch. Uh, I wasn't necessarily rooting for Jimmy Overstreet, uh, but at that point, after that scene, he became irredeemable. I was like, well, forget him. That sort of blemished it for me. But yeah, you can, I can't take anything away from this, the dance sequence, switching to full color, uh, the boldness and the refreshing frankness of Nola Darling, uh, the love that Spike Lee has for all his characters. You can hear it in the dialogue and the way they're presented for all their flaws. Nobody's perfect. And Spike Lee showed right then and there that he was ready to humanize, not lionize, not demonize, but humanize. And that's what really we treasure about Spike Lee's voice uh, from Jump. Um, and it's all there and she's got to have it. I think um, as a teenager watching <clears throat> Do the Right Thing and trying to go back and see Spike's filmography, I feel like it, this She's Got to Have It was not available on DVD until like the late 2000s. Because I think I saw it in film school for the first because it was unavailable in the States. I think there was like a VHS of it. So it was one of those pieces that was just unavailable and the internet didn't exist like it does now where you have access to it. So it always felt like one of those grails where I'd heard about it for so long but never had access to it. And then we watched it in film school. And it's it's weird to... I mean, it's it's kind of beautiful to see just how immediately... How immediate Spike Lee's vision and voice as a parent from the get-go. I've never seen his um, short films before this, but just sort of an immediate calling card. And the choices, like you guys were saying, there's a way that it's photographed that is, like, I, I think the way he photographs the body is, like, very beautiful. It's, it's it never feels sexualized. It always feels like a photograph. It's lit as if it's, like, this... Uh, going to be on the cover of, of a magazine. And I think that's really important for how the character views herself to the way it's also being photographed. I think a lot of directors lose that, where even if a character is supposed to be 
someone who's expressing themselves is still photographed in a way that I always see as sort of the male gaze. And this sort of, in my, I, I kind of saw it as sidesteps it by being, the photography was also character motivated. And I thought that was really beautiful. You know, I have the DVD right here, right here, right here in my hands. I got it from San Francisco, uh, the Amiibo over there. I don't know if I liked it, but I did enjoy it. I thought it was a pretty, a pretty good film. Uh, I love the use of the black and white. It was really, really shot well. Um, actually, my favorite part in the movie is when it transitioned to color and we get the whole little dance sequence. That's actually my favorite part of the movie. It looks so beautiful. And then switch back to black and white. It was really interesting. It was like almost shot like a, like a documentary in a kind of way because they're, they're like talking to the camera and they're telling them what, what they're doing. And, it, you know, my favorite character is Spike Lee. He, 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 he's hilarious. His, his character was hilarious. There's a funny story about that. You guys may or may not know. I'll just throw this trivia in. Spike Lee hates acting. And uh, they had another actor cast as Mars Blackman. And that actor, whoever it was, I couldn't find the name, dropped out. And it was like two days before they were going to shoot. And Spike Lee was like, uh, um, then I'll just play Mars. And I love Spike Lee as Mars oh, in the he movie. Was so good in that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> and there was a, like he told this great story I read where he, you know, he's directing and he's stressed and stuff. And he's in the he's in that that scene where he calls Nola and he just blanked out on his line. The line was just baby, please. That was it. And we supposed to go to the next line. And he blanked out. And it was like, baby, please, 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 baby, please, baby, please. And then that became like the catch line of the movie. Iconic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all I'll add to, to She's Got to Have It is. As a director, as a filmmaker, I really, you know, and I know we're all different. We're all subjective about what we respond to and, and what we think is good filmmaking. For me, I love somebody who considers the editing and the camera and they give us a full experience. It's not just standard shooting. And this time and the last time, I loved how it was like a French New Wave movie. Like Edwin said, they would speak to the camera, even though it was a fiction film. There would be these editing sequences with music and the top shot and the weird sort of overlapping editing. I love that his dad wrote that jazz score, which gave it like a timeless feel. So you're not just it's not just I'm plugging in whatever I'm listening to, but it's almost like this timeless you know, he opens up with a Zora Neale Hurston quote, you know, which is like he's already laying down a marker about what this is going to be. And, and when when she's pasting newspaper clippings onto her wall, one of them mentions a cop killing. And I was just kind of like, my gosh, you know, this has just been a theme that has just run through the black experience from day one. One of the things that Spike Lee said, and I wanted this is for Asia Ray and Kevin. He said that he was sick. Of, you know, he, he was sick of watching movies with Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy where they weren't even allowed a love interest, where they could be the they could be like the main they could be the lead, but they couldn't get a love interest. And he said, like, he was going to make a movie that just was going to show uh, black people living their Showing lives. Showing an everyday depiction of black life at the time, 1986, um, was uh, revolutionary. Like you had. Uh, you would have Melvin Van Peebles, for example. You would have black exploitation, which was an exaggeration of black life. But for a lot of black audiences, the only place that they could really go to see themselves, you had to go watch Car Wash or Sweet Sweet Back, uh, Badass Song or something like that. And here comes Spike Lee just really bringing it back down to earth and making this beautiful uh, tone poem, uh, a mood piece almost, just showing people in their own skin. And that's something uh, that had to be fought for. And that's something that I take for granted today you know, here in 2020, you know, growing up in high school, watching 
The Best Man, Love Jones, Love and Basketball, The Wood. Um, a lot of that started with what Spike Lee was doing, even though a couple of those were directed by his cousin Malcolm Lee. They took it upon themselves to uh, really champion the uh, beauty of black life. And, and even though in many ways it's not mundane, uh, a lot of us long for it to one day be mundane uh, because there's so much strife that we're able to pull all this great art from. But it's in the name of progress and trying to improve things. So we need documents like Spike Lee's filmography and everything else that has sprung forth from it. Um, but yeah, it's it was sorrowful to see that a lot hasn't changed and that there are these constants within black life that still need to be brought to the surface and brought attention uh, to. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself. I think that still, um, as an actor... It's funny when I'm in an acting class and I'm given material, it is usually something about a black person who is struggling in some way. Right. It's like, can I just be an actress in a, in a movie where I am in love? Can I just be a person experiencing something that all people experience? And I think that what you said, Kevin really hits on that. We now have so many more examples of, films where black people are just living. It's not all about them being black, you know? Um, it's about, it's more about the humanity of the people in the film. I really appreciate well, that. Thank you. You know, this, there's, we're recording this on the 22nd. And so this was the first year, uh, Juneteenth, which is celebrating the, the last group of slaves in Galveston, Texas, learning about their freedom two years after the fact, after the Emancipation Proclamation. And, infamously brought attention by Donald Trump's shenanigans trying to hold a Tulsa rally during that day. But in light of the George Floyd protests and everything else, there was this real outpouring of support and attention paid to it on Juneteenth. So what I said on my Facebook to my friends was, if you're confused or you don't know how to celebrate this day with us, uh, just simply be with us, you know, learn from us, learn with us, talk to us, spend time with our community, spend time with our families. So when you watch this black cinema, when you're watching She's Gotta Have It or anything else like that, that's essentially what you're doing in an abstract sense. And then from there, we can spring forth a conversation. I was posting, you know, songs that I've heard in family reunions, cookouts, basically the secret list that no one else is supposed to know about. So I'm, I'm, I'm posting the gap band and I'm posting yes. the time I'm posting like Shaka Khan, all this stuff. It's like, you're invited to the cookout and this is what the cookout sounds like. Cutie pie. You really, you know, like they don't know anything about that, but they will. They're going to learn the electric slide when I'm done with this. That's Juneteenth. And it's about celebrating with joy. Our, our lives as African-Americans is much more than strife and turmoil. And we need our cinema to recognize that. We need our poetry and our art and our music to celebrate that full dimensionality. Uh, growing up as a kid, watching all these shows and TV, I got a full sense of what white Americans were like. And even, <laughs> and even in watching BBC and PBS, you get the full scope. You get the full picture. And we're still trying to develop that. We're still in the dark room trying to develop this picture for you. His most 
most recent movie, Jump Forward 34 Years, and uh, <laughs> I was reading over 50 films when you count his documentaries and what he's done on TV, which is amazing output of anybody. So uh, 50 films later, his most recent feature is The Five Bloods, which opened up uh, June 12th and tells the story of four Vietnam vets who returned to Vietnam, a present-day Vietnam, to find uh, basically a cache of gold bars that they buried during an action in the real Vietnam, and they're going to go and, and get the, the gold bars. And the movie plays almost like a weird action-adventure slash consciousness-raising between Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but then also these guys going back and having to real deal with Vietnam and U.S. policy and where they're at in their lives and PTSD. And it starred uh, Spike Lee regular Delroy Lindo. Actually, most of the guys had all been Clark Peters had been in Red, Red Hook Summer. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. And the, the guy who delivers the... Line okay. <laughs> every single movie. Yeah, they they were they'd all Spike Lee regulars. Uh, let's dive right into it. It definitely begins as many Spike movies do with a montage that contextualizes the movie. You know, he did it in Black Klansman. He does it in a lot of movies. He did it in Malcolm X. He shows you why he's making this movie, and he links it to things he wants you to think about. Ooh, um, let's see. Where, where do I begin? Um, the symbolism of the MAGA hat, and just, <laughs> just that alone is, like, so delicious. You know, these the three movies that we're talking about are all so different, and I probably sank into the Five Bloods least of the three. I'd agree with that, by the way. I'll get Okay, that I, interesting. Yeah, so. yeah, there were so many things that struck me. Mentioning figures in history that so many people are not aware of, Crispus Attucks, who was the first person to die during the Boston Massacre, Milton Olive, who I had never heard of, who won the Medal of Honor for jumping onto a grenade and saving his regiment, you know, which one of the characters does at the, in the end, and you and it comes back to that. I thought it was such an interesting choice to not make the four bloods who were still alive young look younger during the fight scenes. That was something that that brought me out, and then I then I just loved it because it made it brought such a surreal quality to those scenes and it was like it was more like they were remembering Storm and Norman than they were there. I thought there were so many things about the filmmaking that were so so poignant. Is that a MAGA hat? <laughs> like I wrote down that line because it was like <laughs> everyone's thinking that, right? It's like the black Trump voter, something that David says, you know, we're the only we're the only group of people who didn't vote for Trump. So like during that scene where he basically tells off the Finnish guy Seppo for giving him shit about Trump. But yet his father is one of the people who did vote for Trump and who plans to vote for Trump again. Yeah, I, I thought there was there was so much there that was really enjoyable. But for some reason, it felt a little bit to me like a collection of different elements that didn't quite come together in some ways. One, I thought there's an authenticity to it with it actually being shot in Vietnam. Uh, them talking about how in a lot of ways the war was never really over. For them, that's what I took from the uh, cast members, Delroy, Lindo Clark, and Isaiah, actually playing their younger selves. Because in your mind's eye, when you think back to your memory, you're still inhabiting your own uh, body. You don't, you don't really see yourself in different ages, like when you think back to 20 years ago and anything like that. So for me, I thought that was beautiful. Um, it's not until the very end when they take a group shot and you see like maybe they had some makeup and some hair dye so they could sell it in these wide shots. There's a lot of contrast. There's a lot of doing their best to blend it in. But it's sort of like how they were always, they were trapped in that moment in a sense. 
So I, I love the artifice of that and using it uh, to their dramatic advantage. There was a, a lot of Spike Lee's filmography that is not subtle at all. <laughs> like he does not, he does not just does not do subtlety. So he's going to do the MAGA hat. He's going to, my favorite scene in the five bloods is when they finally uncovered the bones. Right. And I was sort of worried because it was at the midpoint so basically, when you have, even in classical storytelling, the midpoint is either your highest point or your lowest point. Every story, you can boil down to its essence. It's either a rise and fall, or it's a fall and rise. And our favorites are the fall and then the rise, basically, right? But that's usually that's not the way that life works out, just being honest as a storyteller. So it's like, oh man, they got the goal, they found Norman, they're at peace, the gang's whole, oh my God, everything's gonna <laughs> crumble to pieces from here. Um, well, first thing, I think if, if a war season comes around and Delroy Lindo isn't like at the peak conversation of that, I think his performance is incredible. I would start by saying I'm, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and our school curriculum is absolutely guilty, as I'm sure a lot of America is. Until I was an adult, I never knew there were black involvement in like Vietnam wars and stuff. You're taught about the heroes of these wars, and I put that in quotations against sort of how you depend on your opinion of things. In my remembrance of school, they're careful with how they're not specific. It's always there's this, well, the Americans went in and did this, and I think that's sort of detrimental because you watch this, and to me it's educational and shocking that it was a blind spot of something I didn't know. And I've been trying to spend the last few days because this movie really shook me up in a good way. I think it's ambitious far beyond what I expected going into it because I didn't watch a trailer or anything. I just sort of went in blind. And I've been trying to read writers who are much smarter than me about it because Spike is such a... He almost acts as like a historian to a degree and at the same time he he has like this pulp sensibility to his work I think sometimes. And this is sort of this this crazy combination of the two, and like we talked about it, it takes it kind of takes the core of the treasure of the Sierra Madre as a sort of a plot rounding. But I almost feel like that's just to give you comfort and believing that you know what's to come. I, I, I like when he isn't subtle about things sometimes because I feel like people like um, my parents who are actively trying to educate themselves now sometimes they can't the, su- the subtlety doesn't mm. work for them they need a direct thing that makes them go oh uh, in preparation of the five bloods i i've watched a lot of vietnam war movies and this one is an epic i loved it it was probably my favorite movie of this year one of spike lee's best of all time uh, i even called it it's the greatest war film since platoon there i said it Daryl Lindo gives one of the best performances of his career. I loved it. He's almost, he's basically the Tom Berenger of the group, like in Platoon. He's all crazy, you know, PTSD and everything like that. My my grandfather was in the Vietnam War. Uh, I think he was a, a mechanic over there, I think. I don't think he ever seen any real battle or anything like that. But um, the, the actor who plays uh, Norman, he he was amazing, man. I, yeah, Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman, he did a terrific job. He was great. When, when he meets his dead friend, where he's all in the jungle, mm-hmm. you know, he's talking to himself, going basically crazy, talking to the camera, you know, saying all these lines. But he then, he finally gave, he, he, got, he gets closure from Chadwick Boseman's character Say, hey, I forgive you, man. I forgive you. And it was an accident. It's like, dude, that, that burst me into tears. That made me cry. Like, holy crap. But I did have one little problem. I wish that Spike Lee used practical effects instead of CGI bullets and blood. 
Like, come on, you could have you could have done practical. It would have been much realistic. But that part of the movie, I did, I did cry. That, that was a very emotional. Speaking part of as the previous age. generation uh, to yours, Edwin, like when you're a sixty year old actor, squibs hurt more. So I would say, yeah, CG, CG hits for anyone that's sixty plus. Don't put a squib on them. So uh, our producer. And Chief Creative Content Officer Connor wanted to really listen on this one. But he did have one comment that we're going to read right here. And uh, so here's what Connor said about The Five Bloods. And I actually thought, you know, it really got me thinking and, and how I perceive cinema. So Connor said, I mostly like the film, but the thing that's been sitting with me the most is Spike's use of footage and photos of real live death and mutilated remains. I remember some people having issue with Spike's use of Heather Heyer's death in Black Klansman and not uh, getting it, but I do now. It's needlessly upsetting and exploitative. A day after, and I'm not thinking of the incredible performances at the heart of this film, but of that real footage of a guy getting shot in the head and blood spurting out like a Tarantino movie. And I believe Connor's referring to the very famous Vietnam shot of a uh, Vietnam officer executing a Viet Cong on the street that we've all seen in our history books. And then a moment later from that photo, he gets shot. But there's actual video or film footage of it that Spike Lee shows as if. And then Connor ends by saying, as if my mental health wasn't bad enough these days. Thanks, Spike. I actually have always said to people that as somebody who loves movies, I can pretty much watch anything as long as I know it's fiction and that it adhered the way they did it, adhered to the rules of cinema, that everyone felt cool on the set about it. I can watch any scene, any kind of violent, if I think there's a point to it. But I hadn't put together that when I watch certain movies and they use footage from real life like Spike Lee does, I'm actually seeing a real death. Or I'm actually seeing real dead bodies. And in To Five Blood, Spike Lee shows us photos of the My Lai Massacre. I mean, there, there's, there's, and he shows us that scene. So anybody can take this. I, I thought that was a really good point. I personally have my thoughts about the five bloods, and I'll share them in a second. That stuff was not something that bothered me. I, I, for me, I, I, I was like, well, no, this is about Vietnam. This is about what these guys went through. This is about, as, as someone just said, that Spike Lee's acted as our historian in a way. I felt like this was Spike Lee contextualizing it. So I was fine with it. I, I, I but, but I must have a threshold for that. Because I don't, I mean, I definitely book, but then I move forward. I don't, does anyone have thoughts on that? Because Spike Lee does show, and he has in previous movies, real deaths, real photos. Uh, it's not fiction. It's what really happened. Any I thoughts? do. I feel like it kind of, I appreciate the fact that he showed it because I think that we all have a responsibility to be aware of what actually happened. And it's kind of, kind of is analogous, I think, to uh, white privilege now. And being able to, you know, some people are in a position where they can kind of opt out of politics, opt out of like <laughs> certain things, opt out and others aren't. And I feel like we kind of all have a responsibility to like shoulder this awareness and this trauma together. It's not just up to the people who were there to be aware of like what actually happened. Like all of us now have the opportunity to like absorb this and figure out what we're going to do about it, how we're going to live our lives as a result of the fact that this happened and continues to happen. You, you do have to wake up and be like, we have to think critically about this because there's a disconnect. So I think sometimes when people go back and revise history, but I feel like there's a certain revisionism, but photos and footage sort of refute that immediately which is like, no, this is what happened. Yep. Or at least this is part of what happened. Without video footage, we wouldn't have this movement now that we're in the middle of. And no one could refute that. 
No one could refute that. Going all the way back to George Floyd's murder, it was such a slow, agonizing, and horrible, brutal process that it was it was a horror film. And in its own way, it, it was a real-life horror film. We sanitized violence. We sanitized death. Like, I used to watch cartoon shows all the time. Whenever a G.I. Joe vehicle or Cobra would blow up, there was a dude jumping out with the parachute. Oh, everything's fine. And that's not life at all. So going back to Philando Castile, going back to Alton Sterling, um, Eric Garner, who was surrounded by cops and getting the life choked out of him. It, it took this video, like you said, these documents to galvanize people. And it, it's been a slow process. Uh, in a lot of ways, when George Floyd was murdered, that was the last straw because it's like not even a pandemic can stop this from happening. That's how gross and dangerous and lethal this situation of police brutality, white supremacy, and everything else has been that we just took for granted. So you, you do have to shake people up. Uh, I, I, I don't want to see death. When, when someone sent me the Ahmaud Arbery video, I knew I didn't want to see that, but I knew I needed to see it. I knew I, I needed to see what had happened to this young man, uh, Rayshard Brooks, um, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's, it, it has to stop. And now that everyone basically has a camera in their pocket, now people are starting to listen to us. Um, it doesn't sound like we're talking about uh, some abstract thing that people might have said that we're just making up or that we're just self-victimizing. Uh, no, this is this is life, and here it is. I personally thought the movie was a mess. There's the Spike Lee where it all comes together, and that to me is, you know, do the right thing, Malcolm X, He Got Game, Clockers. The, those movies, uh, like, I just feel like it all locks in. And then there's Spike Lee movies where I feel he's trying to say so much, and it doesn't all completely work, but it's still really fascinating, and I'd put to Five Bloods in that category. And I would name movies like Jungle Fever or even a movie a lot of people do. Oh, I love Bamboozled. I put Bamboozled at the top of the list of movies I love. But then there are movies like uh, Jungle Fever or She Hate Me. You know, I loved Red Hook Summer, but I definitely thought it was trying to say a lot, but I actually really liked Red Hook. But you watch it and you're like, you're trying to say 30 things in this movie. And, and you know, that's great. You should, because you never know when you're going to get to make another movie. But into Five Bloods, I just kept feeling like I was being whiplashed. Like one moment I was watching Delroy Lindo and that amazing scene where they're on the boat and the, the guy is trying to sell him the chicken. And I was like, I want two and a half hours of that movie like that. That's the movie that I want two and a half hours of. And then suddenly there would be what I felt were more straight ahead action adventure things. Which, why not? You can totally do it. But then I was like, this feels weird. I love the scene where they hear that Martin Luther King has died, has been assassinated. Yeah. And they all want to, like, go off. And Chadwick Boseman says something to the effect of, don't let them control our rage. Yes. Or whatever that line is. And you talk about, like, not being subtle and as a white guy. I never even thought of that concept. And whatever, like, I jumped up in my seat. That was a scene I thought, like, like, whoa, whoa. That was one of my favorites, I would say. That was very emotional during that scene. Uh, Craig, I'm willing, for, I'm willing to forgive you for not liking the film, but I did like that scene as well. <laughs> Thank you. You really for, hurt me, Craig. I'm sorry, Edward. You really hurt me, man. But it's a movie conversation. Can, can I just say one thing about um, Jonathan Majors really quick? He's incredible in The Last Black Man in San Francisco, and I read a little tidbit about how he got cast in this movie, which was his casting director said Spike wanted a meeting with him, and he biked down to um, Brooklyn to meet with him in his editing studio. And he said Spike showed him the new Killers music video he was working on about the border wall. And um, Jonathan started crying. 
And Spike said he looked at him and said, uh, so uh, Delroy Lindo's going to play your dad. We shoot in Thailand. Do you have your passport? And he said there was no audition. He just brought him down here to show him that and tell him that he got it. And he said he he walked his bike home after that, called his friends and was like, oh, I got it. And everyone was like, what do you mean? Like, you, did you audition? He's like, no, I just, he gave it to me. And he was good. He was great. He's, he's incredible in The Last Black Man. Yes. Yeah. Love The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So moving on to Malcolm X, uh, Spike Lee made the movie. Uh, it came out in 1992, I believe his first, no, second collaboration with Denzel Washington. They'd done Mo Better Blues. And then after this, they would go on to do He Got Game and Inside Man. Uh, and I hope they do something else. Basically, this is based on Alex Haley's The Autobiography of Malcolm X. It very much tells his life story almost from birth, definitely through death and beyond. Spike Lee had to fight as much as any movie. He's always said that the two hardest movies he ever made were She's Gotta Have It because it was his first and he had to raise all the money and Malcolm X where they ran out of money and then he had to go to Oprah Winfrey and Bill Cosby and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and to raise the money because they locked him out of the editing room, if you can believe it, the Bond company. And then he went, he called and he used Malcolm's example of just self-determination. I'm just going to make this happen. He got the money. And then Warner Brothers fired the Bond company when they saw the cut. They let him make the movie. So the happy ending is that this is the movie Spike Lee wanted to make. So you are, when you see Malcolm X, you are, you're not seeing some kind of horrible comedy. You are seeing the movie that Spike Lee wanted to make. Um, it was shot, the last movie shot with Ernest Dickerson, who I love, and uh, an amazing cinematographer. And Denzel Washington, you know, just I saw, we just saw it again on Saturday. And you just kind of like sit in awe. You watch Denzel Washington, Angela Bassett, and you're just like, holy <laughs> Um I love this movie. I I was very emotional for about an about 90 minutes after I finished watching this film. I cried, and I'm, I feel like I'm going to again because... It really reminded me of how you can think of black leader after black leader after black leader who have been taken away from us at the height of their impact. You think of the possibilities if they had been allowed to live and continue their missions and what a different place we might be in today if that had happened. But I just, I love the the journey throughout. I read the book that this film is based on as a kid. And I remember watching the movie and, and thinking, oh my gosh, how how true to that book the film is. It did, in my opinion, such a great job of describing his journey of self-realization and how that was reflected in the way that he led. I mean, because the guy, Malcolm X, was just brilliant from birth, right? Just like this super intelligent, talented kid all the way till, you know, till he died when he was what 40, but how in the beginning, because of the way that the state really ruined his family, he says, right. He was put in a position where he was a criminal and just like the kind of misguidance that led to the way that he was. I love that the movie started with him straightening his hair. And as a black woman who has had a relaxers and knows how that feels, <laughs> And who no longer straightens her hair like that really like resonated. You know, he says, looks white, don't it? He looks in the mirror and he's so happy because it looks white. You know, just that like self-hatred really hits me. He goes all the way from self-hatred to self-love and you could argue hate of others to love of all. And that's really the journey in the movie. So I just... It's, it was beautiful. It was probably my third time watching it. I was so, I'm so grateful that you asked me to do this podcast because I watched it again. <laughs> and it really struck me in the context of this 
of the time that we're in now. Asia Ray, I agree with everything you said. One of the uh, biggest human crimes uh, in our history is that Malcolm was taken from us the moment he self-actualized and that he was actually able to evolve past the teachings of the Nation of Islam and embrace true Islam. And uh, what could have been if we didn't lose Martin, if we didn't lose JFK, if we didn't lose Bobby, if we didn't lose Malcolm. Tupac. Exactly, exactly. They keep trying to kill the future. And it's and now that it's 2020, now that, you know, this self-prophesized uh, future date that we kept talking about, it's like, no, you can't, you can't do that anymore to us. And, I, and I'm glad that not only that we had people in our lives, like before the times that I was born, uh, like Malcolm and everyone else, but that people who just would not let the sands of time wash them away. And not just like with, you know, Spike Lee going to Oprah and Jordan and Prince and whoever else to fundraise. You know, it's probably one of the first rated R movies my parents had no problem me watching. They knew what I could handle because I would always sneak in a bunch of stuff. But that's for another podcast. The point is, the most beautiful thing about Malcolm X is that it's able to take the sign of, of the times of of everything that he had lived through. And we are able to like look through this pinpoint that was this magnificent man's life. One of my favorite moments was when Joe Lewis wins the championship boxing. He's on the car, they're jumping, and it's like, what's all that racket? Oh, sorry, Mr. Cooper. Uh, Malcolm, yeah, sorry, Mr. Charlie. He's like, Mr. Cooper. So even in this one microtransaction, they have to sustain that hierarchy. Like that's how delicate that balance is. And that's what made Malcolm so dangerous is that he inhabited this dignity of his own humanity, that just being a human being was a threat to the way things were, that they had to criminalize him, like Asia Ray said, like they had to follow him to Mecca, to the pyramids of Egypt. Like, it's like, if he, if he encourages people across the nation, across the planet to be self-aware of their own humanity, that's it for the system that we built. Hmm. And here we are now. We're still trying to do the good work that Malcolm and Martin and everyone else were doing. We're still trying to fight for humanity. Even in reading a comment thread on Twitter, you'll see people saying, oh, you know, all lives matter or white lives matter. And it's like, fine, but that won't be the case until black lives matter. And you see people trying to politicize the situation, trying to racialize the coronavirus and everything else. It's like, no, we only have time for the truth. We only have time for the truth. And we're all going to arrive at the truth together. And it takes masterworks like Malcolm X to crystallize that the phase and the stage of that movement at that time so that people can still watch it. It's it's an achievement. I, I always go between Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. So I guess it's really just depends on which one I've watched most recently. What's, what's Spike Lee's best film? Oh, Do the Right Thing. Two days later. Oh, it's Malcolm X. Two weeks later. Oh, Do the Right Thing. Radio Raheem. Like, look at, look at what has happened. Malcolm X. Malcolm X. There's nothing, you know, like, so, yeah. Thank you once again for having me, Asia Ray, and for, for doing this. Because I needed to watch all of those films. Thank, thank you, guys. So, Malcolm X was another thing in, in school curriculums as going to, like, a, a, a mostly white school in Oklahoma that is, is glossed over. Like, Malcolm X's contributions are spoken about, but it's mostly that he is a radical and essentially kind of culminates that those decisions led to were, were part of his legacy versus what he actually worked for is very glossed over. But I had a history teacher who was adamant that to read this biography. So I, I read the book, but I hadn't seen the movie till a few months ago. And I'm usually, I'm not huge on um, biopics, but there's something that spikes working within this. And I think it's because it is this epic pushing three and a half hours 
where usually biopics feel like they kind of gloss over things to get this massive thing in one but this feels like it takes its time to establish who Malcolm X is as a human first so that you you empathize with him through his decisions when he sort of hits prison and starts to to find find himself and then the build into who he becomes and what he represents I loved it I think it's Spike Lee's greatest film ever made and it, it, and it is an epic in all ways and I love it how the movie opens up with, with the beating of uh, Rodney King where the police are just beating on him that was like really intense to watch uh, my favorite part of the movie is um, when they go to the police station to find out if the, one of their dudes are is okay but uh, they find out that he's not, so they rush into the hospital and they like have a, like a whole march to the hospital, like that. Hey, like hey, I'm not satisfied, man. I want justice, you know. Like that that whole sequence was amazing. Then also where he goes to uh, to the to different countries, you know, like to find himself, you know, to understand what he's trying to do more. Um, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was 14, and I was blown away by it. And uh, this is a true story that I told while we were watching the movie. When I was 17, I won a scholarship and they gave me this sheaf of paper to fill things out. And I just had to do it real quickly. And on it, they said, name two heroes. So I named my two heroes. And then the award ceremony comes. And I didn't know what that was all about. It was something we had to fill out the day we were doing the scholarship thing. So all these kids get up to get their awards and they're like, and their heroes are their mother and father, their grandparents, their mom and dad. And then I, this is Orange County, by the way, just so you know. So then I go up to Orange County and they're like Craig Hamill and his two heroes are Malcolm X and Joseph Campbell. So I'll tell you what I got out of it. But I always worry about it as a white guy. I'm like, did I really get what I was supposed to get out of it? Or am I getting a white guy thing out of it? But the, the thing that I loved was Malcolm X was so intelligent and so true to who he was. He was willing to admit when he was wrong and he was willing to look into well, wait, I was following Elijah Muhammad, but if this guy was sleeping with women, I'm going to look into that. I'm not going to look away from it. And when he did his Hajj and he went and he saw that there were white people that were Muslim and spiritual, and he was like, okay, well, then my issues with systematic racism, my issue isn't with all white people. You don't see that bigness and character in many people. And, and, like, and this is no judgment. Most of us are not that big. Most of us are not able to say I was wrong about 10 years of my life. The FBI who are um, monitoring him say, compared to King, this guy's a monk, right? <laughs> totally. Like, even, you know. Even the CIA. Even, yeah, like, right, the CIA. <laughs> was all like, wow, Malcolm X, man. Uh, you know, he wasn't apologetic, and he shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have to be apologetic about something that you all take for granted. You know, like the, the injustice is on your side. It's not on my side. You know, and then as a movie, Kevin, I'm, I'm with you. I think the two best things he's ever done, I kind of see them co-equally now having seen Malcolm again. Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X are, are equally two of the greatest movies of the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, people should see Malcolm X if they haven't because it is overpowering. And there's that scene later in the movie where he and Angela Bassett are arguing. And even though I read that that didn't really happen in real life, Betty Shabazz said, Malcolm and I never really fought like that. It was more for dramatic purpose. You watch Denzel Washington and Angela Bassett in that scene, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you're just like, like, this is as good as any scene yep. in the last 40 years with their, this is a husband and a wife dealing with a whole bunch of stress, trying to be the best people that they can be. But I would just say that in that autobiography, in the movie, to me, is the blueprint for how how we work this stuff out, which is we all come to our lives with prejudices and anger and, and emotion. And we all like hold on to it. But to be able to be like, well, maybe I'm going to examine it 
maybe I'm going to question it. Yeah. Maybe I'm going to try to work past it. And maybe I'm going to try to like constantly try to improve myself and be like a part of the solution, even though I'm dealing with all this stuff inside me. That to me seems like the only realistic way. And, and I just, I just would have always been very influenced by, by that and by Malcolm X. So, so we, as Daniel full well knows, cause Daniel and I had to have a conversation about how to deal with this guy. We, uh, we have had some alt-right people. Yeah. Commenting on our boards recently because we did the Spike Lee thing. And it was very interesting to me. These cats were never on our boards when it was about any other movie. Right. But the moment that our boards, like our social media was all about Spike Lee and Spike Lee movies, these guys were taking us to task about supposedly non-racial issues. They were taking us to task about like, you know, you've got a bias or they were telling me like your definition of social justice is a bias or, you know, did this, that and the other. And listen, and I understand what they were saying. And and, and I had to make up my mind. I was like, I'm not going to delete this because I don't believe in censorship. And there's nothing that they're saying. They said it in that alt-right way where it was like they weren't being inflammatory, but it was clear what they were getting across. But one of the things they kept doing was they kept posting this Malcolm X quote that I just want to read to you guys, uh, <laughs> which, which uh, they kept posting to me. And, and by the way, if they're listening, you, please, well, we want this to be a dialogue. Obviously, you're hearing my honest reactions to what, what was being posted, but we did not censor you. I want to just say, nor should we have. This is a dialogue. And I recognize that. And I recognize I have my viewpoint and you posted and you posted your viewpoint very intelligently. Um, but this is what they post that Malcolm X said. The worst enemy that the Negro has is the white man that runs around here drooling at the mouth, professing to love Negroes and calling himself a liberal. And it is following these white liberals that has perpetuated problems that Negroes have. If the Negro wasn't taken, tricked, or deceived by the white liberal, the Negroes would get together and solve our own problems. I only cite these things to show you that in America, the history of the white liberal has been nothing but a series of trickery designed to make Negroes think that the white liberal was going to solve our problems. Our problems will never be solved by the white man. That was what they posted. And, uh, you know, that's something that Malcolm said. And I'm not going to editorialize here, but it is a provocative thing in the context of the dialogue we were having. I guess my question put simply is in this moment, we're seeing people deny that this is happening. We're seeing people getting angry that words like just social justice are being used. We see people responding to the fact there seems to be a groundswell. I think that the groundswell is all about the fact that this is not true, no matter how strong and self-realized black people are because of the nature of racism. Black people cannot solve racism. Racism is a white person problem. You know, it's up to the people who are in the, the position of supremacy to be willing really to address the systemic issues that we're seeing, the more undercurrent issues that we're seeing. I think that really, really speaks to Malcolm's journey. He and we saw this at the end of the film, was really in a position of, you know, we are all, we are family. We are the a human family. On Loving Day, I posted a quote from Malcolm X. And Loving Day, by the way, is the day that the Supreme Court struck down anti-miscegenation laws in 16 states, which meant that interracial couples were finally allowed. And this was not that long ago. But I posted a quote from Malcolm then where he talks about, if we all thought of each other as family, then we wouldn't have any of the issues that we have. And I think that it really is up to the part of the family that has been doing the oppressing traditionally to be willing to give up some of that 
control and some of that supremacy and some of those practices and in order for us to have any real change. We can push and push and push as black people, but it's something that we all have to work on Angela, together. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, a lot of my friends, they've talked to me in the last few days and weeks about what they can do to be better allies, not just my white friends, but uh, even my Asian friends, uh, Latino friends, even Muslim friends of mine who were like, maybe they felt like they were staying silent and they wanted to jump in. And one of the things I did was talk to them about my experience being a trans ally and just listening to people and just not making it about my experience, not making it about me. You have to be humble enough to decenter yourself. And I'd be like, I'm not transphobic. It's like, that's the only analog or parallel that I can show to someone and their experiences with racism. Just giving people a space to be human. When I talk to friends of mine who are post-transition, but that their transitioning wasn't the core of their being. It's just a moment they self-actualize and could finally just live their life. And there was more to them as a human being, as a person, than the fact that they transitioned. So when I talk to friends of mine about being not just anti-racist, but being pro-equity, they're related and there's a Venn diagram, but they're still two separate things. It's like creating equal spaces for all. It's a dialogue and it can be tiring. It can be exhausting. That's why we have to encourage each other and uplift one another with our uh, white allies there was a moment where they had to stop seeing themselves as white saviors and substituting that for an, a true allyship and that we're not looking for a bailout. We're not looking for charity. We're not looking for canceling cops and, and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, sure, fine. It's a weird show anyway. Get rid of it. But what we want is, is people to pay attention to policies. When we say defund the police, we're not saying abolish the police. It's time for this Mad Max Fury Road to happen is like, no, if you have a police department that's soaking up billions and billions of dollars, what else could you do with that? Who else could you send when someone calls 911 for a mental health scenario or a domestic dispute? Not necessarily someone who has, who's carrying death on their hip and only has a binary reaction to it. We're talking about the evolution of our society and cultural evolution is always faster than biological evolution. So we had to imagine our future selves, our future people, so that when the time comes, they can inherit a, a better future, a better world, a better country. That's what this whole sequence of events has been about to me. There's a space for us not just to be better allies, not just to be better people, but to really create a seismic shift on how we see ourselves in terms of race, in terms of friends. You know, like there are people in my life that I didn't realize they were such good friends to me because we never had that dialogue before. And I've always been polite about not bringing up race. I just want to sit down and play Dungeons and Dragons. We don't have to have this discussion right now. It's cool to just sit back and talk about De Palma. And like, it's like, hey, he rips off Hitchcock. Yeah, but he does it so well. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's refreshing not to have to be the black guy and not talk about these black issues. But if we're going to, it, it means the world that... We have so many people finally paying attention and finally just the will, the will to listen and the will to act that we've reached critical mass and we haven't had that before. Yeah. You know, Kevin, what, what you said, you know, I've been trying to wrestle with it on my own. And the only the answer I've only come to is humility, like you said, is is not having a me reaction is just like just forget about whatever. Just 
put that aside and try to be humble and put yourself in someone else's shoes, because then it would be real obvious if you did that. But my question to you guys is, oh, so here we are at this moment. June 2020. It does feel it does feel like a critical mass or it could be a changing point. Where do you think we can go from here that continues what hopefully is a productive thing? That's a tough one. There are lots of things, but I think I'm going to focus on something that we talked about that Malcolm was so able to do, which is be willing to sit in that uncomfortable place where you have grown and you see your old self and know that something was wrong. Something was out of place. And I think that there are a lot of people who are in that position right now who are realizing how they have contributed to the racist culture in our country or wherever they live. And rather than running from it, rather than looking for a quote from somebody to post in their defense, rather than throwing up a saying in defense of themselves and in defense, you know, I wasn't there. This is, it's not my fault what my ancestors did. You know, all these things that we're seeing rather than running to defend themselves, being willing to sit in that discomfort and that shame, really, it's a, sh- it's a shame response, which we can all identify with as human beings. It's hard to feel that, but being willing to feel that and move forward with the knowledge that it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that we all need to contribute to making that change. And I think that if we can all, every single one of us, if we can sit with that discomfort and go inside, then we will get the message as to how we can most contribute to making this a better place for all of us to live. I would go with uh, sustenance. We have a movement and it needs sustaining. We have extremely complex problems to solve. So speaking for myself, I was going on LACity.org, just looking at the history of police budgeting, how much personnel they have, how much money it costs. And I don't want to hate policemen. I don't want to be angry at policemen. Their job sucks. And we don't have an apparatus sociologically to really give them the support because so much of policing depends on fear and acquiescing to authority. Instead of them being an outgrowth of our community organically and being like, help us, please. Sure. I'm here to help. Like we need to arrive there. And it's scary that in a lot of ways we are not there yet. It's going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of soul searching to figure out what's the best way forward. I get angry at the Trump administration, at Pence, at all these people. He's not worth it. He's not even worth incurring and stirring up my anger. He's not worth the neurons. I have enough time to focus on the people I love and I care about who I have left and what I can do to be a better person for them on their behalf. I'm lucky that I have so many awesome friends, uh, including my white friends. I have some pretty dope white friends and, and they do not deserve my anger or, or my distrust. And those very few, those who have disappointed me with um, their perspectives or their viewpoints, um, if they're worth it, I will take the time to sit down and try to talk with them. And the important thing is, is, is that it is a conversation and not an argument. You can win an argument. You can lose an argument. You can't do that with a conversation. So if someone's willing to ha- just willing to have that conversation in good faith, if they're willing, just like Asia Ray said, to just sit and listen in that discomfort, to move past that discomfort, evolve past it. It's not about you or me. It is about us. And it's going to be uncomfortable until it isn't until we can finally win this thing, until we can finally just become better. So as long as that's happening in good faith, then we can sustain that movement. And that's what we need.
we are going to move to pop culture and final thoughts. <laughs> Total abrupt shift. <laughs> uh, so now we're going to talk about petty stuff, guys. Uh, so I know that's like a that's a roller coaster that was not designed right, Asia Ray. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, right now I'm reading this uh, Star Wars, Doctor Afra. Uh, fantastic stuff. I love all, I love Star Wars. I'm a big giant nerd. But just to mix it up, uh, there's also this. I would recommend Robin D'Angelo's uh, White Fragility. Um, it's just a good way to talk about not making it about you necessarily. This system involves all of us. But as far as fun pop culture stuff goes, I was down with Picard season one until the season finale, but they did their best. They probably needed some more time to work on that season finale. And uh, I've really been digging just watching a lot of limited series because they end. Like, I'm not necessarily <laughs> looking for a season two or a season three all the time. So in that regard, devs. From Alex Garland, who did Ex Machina, who did Annihilation. Really loving devs on Hulu, FX on Hulu. For right now, you're welcome to follow me on Twitter.com slash NiveckJ1. That's N-I-V-E-K-J1. Kevin spelled backwards. It was the 90s. Let it go. Um, I, I've been continuing to move through um, Spike's filmography, and the one I was really taken with last week was Crooklyn, which I feel like it's sort of insane that it's not talked about in like the best of coming-of-age movies. It fits right in... like days and confused vernacular of like early 90s sort of capture in a moment and it's it's really good and another one led by um delroy lindo and a great performance and then i also watched um i think the only jim jarmusch movie i hadn't seen which was night on earth which is like a anthology series but winona writer is one of the notable actresses in that and it's incredible too and uh the only other thing i can think of is connor our producer streams streams frequently on twitch.tv slash connor Cruz, but specifically on thursdays i'm playing with him we're playing rainbow six siege and all the donations that he amasses are being donated to a variety of black lives matter and other memorial funds and bailout funds so thursdays i believe around eight or nine pacific time we will start and you can watch us be bad at the game. And what's that Twitch handle again? It is uh, twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I actually bought a DVD the other day uh, in Little Tokyo. It was a blind buy. It is Akira Kurosawa's Rhapsody in August. What do you think? I did not like it. <laughs> I did not like it. I, I was too damn depressing. I, I don't know how he got Richard Gere. I don't know. I want to know how he got Richard Gere. Because he's a Kira Kurosawa. Yeah, but I wish they, they would have gave Gere more scenes. He's like there for three or four scenes and he's gone. I did not like the ending of the film. I hated it. Why she's running up in the freaking wing. Why the kids are running after her. And it ends. It ends right there. Like, why would you add a freaking movie like that, you know? And I regret buying it now. <laughs> and this is the second Kurosawa movie I watched. The first one is Ron. This is my second. What do you think of Ron? Oh, you know, you know me, man. Ron's a f***ing masterpiece, man. The, yeah, for whatever it's worth, just a little trivia tidbit. Kurosawa began his career writing and directing his movies, but something like the third or fourth movie in, he realized his scripts got better if he had multiple writers because they'd check his indulgences. So he wrote the rest of his filmography with two or three other writers to get really three-dimensional scripts. But then the very last three scripts he wrote, and Rhapsody in August is one, he went back to writing them on his own. And uh, he wrote Dreams, Rhapsody in August, and Matadayo really is almost a trilogy of he knew he was getting to the end of his life and looking back, um, and they're definitely looking back movies. I actually happen to like all of them. I, I like Rhapsody in August. You did? I did. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I'm, there's not a Kurosawa movie I don't like. Why? He's one of the few people that never made a bad movie, in my opinion. There is not a bad Kurosawa movie. This was depressing. Yes, but it was about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, I know that. that I, lo I, lo I, lo I know that. <laughs> That's I know a that. depressing thing, Edwin. 
But still. <laughs> There's no way to make an uplifting movie about that. Well, still, man. <laughs> I, know. I still like the ending, though. I wish they would have done more to it. I know. I understand. I understand. I understand. And, and, I, and I love your views because they're real. The house of cinema welcomes all. We need all viewpoints. I would just say I often find if I read a novel, it helps me think of great things to do in cinema. I love looking at a different medium because then a different medium will help me think. And I'll be like, oh, why couldn't I do that in this medium rather than just making movies about movies, which I think is a real danger. Uh, So I just finished James Joyce Ulysses, but we're going to have that conversation another time because Connor wants in on it. It is still my favorite novel, but I would just say if you ever get to it, don't let people talk you out of it. You'll be fine. There's so much experimentation and wonderful things in that novel. It's so challenging and experimental and stylistically amazing, but there is a there, there, and it was great. And now I'm reading Shakespeare sonnets because I'm about to read all of his plays again. I almost never read a novel again. I don't know about you guys. I'm not somebody who goes back to novels again. I read it and I'm like, they're just too many novels. I got to get on to other novels, but I reread Ulysses and now I'm going to reread Shakespeare and we'll go from there. Speaking of novels that I'm going to read again, I just read Jitterbug Perfume by Tom Robbins and it was so masterfully constructed. I'm going to actually read that again. And I agree with you. I never read novels again, but highly recommend check it out. It's about too much for me to even just try to summarize it, but Jitterbug Perfume, check that out. And right now I've been doing a lot of watching comedy just because I need some lightness in my life. And so there are three that I'm going to recommend or three that I've been like kind of rotating between Shit's Creek, which I'm, I'm so late to the party, but I'm just watching that. So fantastic. Um, my fiance hadn't seen Fleabag, so we rewatched that. Fantastic. And I think she does a great job of just making black people people throughout, which I really appreciate. And then the third one that I'll mention is I'm Sorry, and you can catch me in that on season one. So there's the plug. <laughs> if you want to join my community, I would love to have that. Instagram is my favorite platform, so I'm at Asia Ray Coleman there. That's A-J-A-R-A-E. Coleman. And um, if you're an actor and you want to join my free community, we're over on Facebook. The group is called Actors Who Get It. And I would love to meet you virtually and and hang out. Definitely check out I'm Sorry on Netflix. Starring Asia Ray Coleman. <laughs> well, starring is a stretch, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I appear in season one. <laughs> in a moment, we're going to end Secret Movie Clubbers, this podcast. And uh, we, we invited a third guest on who couldn't make it, Gary Pooh. Gary and I made a movie uh, together uh, when we were young, young, young men. I think we were both 21. Gary starred in it. I wrote and directed it called Foot in the Mouth. And um, Gary couldn't be with us today because he has been going back and forth between L.A. and Texas, taking care of his mother, who has had a major lung uh, transplant operation. Gary, I've told you this before, but any man who takes care of his mom is amazing. And Gary has been doing that as well as being a great father to his own kids and uh, and his wife. Uh, but Gary wrote a track that he wrote in reaction to the George Floyd murder and what's happening called Breathe. It was written and performed by Gary Pooh. Please check Gary out at Gary Pooh, uh, Gary, G-A-R-Y-P-O-U-X. That's his Facebook. And then his Instagram is the Puminator at P-O-U-X-M-I-N-A-T-O-R. We're going to go out today, guys, to Gary's track, Breathe, and we're just going to play in its entirety no funny button at the end so when we're done gary's music is going to take us out and we're going to play it to the end of that track it is it is an amazing track in response to what's going on thank you gary for letting us share it and that's it i want to uh thank everybody for being on here yeah. asia ray kevin thank you guys so much 
for taking the time. And it was a wonderful conversation. We we wish you guys all the best. We want you back. And then we wish all secret movie clubbers, um, you know, uh, I know a lot of you are thinking about it. We're thinking about it. Like Kevin and Asia Ray said, this has got to be the beginning. It can't it can't be the end. It can't be this happen. And we all like, oh, I get it. And then we don't do anything that that cannot be what happens. We got everybody going. So, guys, it's hard to do hard work. It is hard to do hard work, but it's the hard work that means the most. So let's do that hard work together and watch great movie and be good people. Thank you, guys. Take care. This ain't about politics. This ain't about Democrat. This ain't about Republican. It's about injustice and equality. And if you care about me or anybody who looks like me, we need you to stand up. I just want to breathe. I've been silent for too long. Been sitting in my home wondering what is going on. Yeah, I always post that silly stuff. Now it's time for me to switch it up. Ain't feeling in this roll up. Delete button. Hit it up. Goodbye. Breathe. And it's a shame I gotta say it. But some of y'all ain't listening. Distracted by the mayhem. Hey, protesters protest. Looters, they loot shit. Ain't none of us with good sense. Down with that dumb shit. I take a minute and listen. I'm a black man, got two beautiful children. So I'm standing up today with this lyrical protest. And if you don't stand up with me, it could be your kid that's next. Who you stand with?